You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today's topic is absolutely fascinating. We're talking today about fossilized bryophytes. And if you spend any time researching fossils, you realize just how rare the fossilization process is. And if that's true for things that are as big as dinosaurs, then it's especially true for things as small as mosses. And my guest today studies just that. Alex Bippus is a graduate student at Oregon State, and he studies bryophyte fossils in a very intriguing way. I'm going to let him describe the whole process, but this is just mind-blowing work. The resolution they're able to get out of these paleobotanical investigations is, is incredible. And it's amazing to me that people not only have the eye, but also the attention to detail that is required to do this sorts of work. So, I want to jump right into this. I don't want to waste any more time. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Alex Bippus. I hope you enjoy. All right, Alex Bippus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate coming on. I love your show and really happy to be here. Thank you. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology at Oregon State. Actually just started. I did my orientation here today. <laughs> Congrats. And I study fossil bryophytes and I use them to understand bryophyte evolution. Awesome. And we got a lot to talk about today, but I'm really curious, what brought you to plants, and how did you go from plants to paleobotany, or am I assuming it started that way? Were you more into the paleo aspect of things, and then plants became a focus? Where did it all begin for you? Um, I've always been interested in plants. I went camping and hiking a lot as a kid, and my parents have always enjoyed plants. My mom was always taking sort of close-up pictures of flowers and insects when I was a kid, and that definitely got me interested in them. But I've also always loved paleontology. I was one of those kids that just devoured, you know, stuff about dinosaurs when I was a kid. And when I found out when I was a little kid that they were actually fossil plants, that blew my mind. And so I actually wanted to be a paleobotanist from the time I was like in first grade on. And so I actually didn't ever think that I would pursue it as a career. But when I signed up to go to university, I my first semester as a freshman college student, I took general botany at Humboldt State University with uh, Professor Mihai Tomescu, who happened to be a paleobotanist. And so I decided I would give it a shot to do research in his lab with him, and I discovered I loved it. So it all kind of came together for me right then, just out of luck. Wow, what a wonderful sort of crystallization moment to kind of make a lifelong pursuit, essentially, into a, an actual feasible career path. And you don't really hear about a lot of kids wanting to be paleobotanists specifically, but it is kind of funny. I would assume, and again, this could just be a wild assumption, that plant fossils, pound for pound, probably outnumber any other sort of animal fossil, right? Um, that's not necessarily true. Okay. There's actually a really rich invertebrate fossil record of things like uh, things with a shell. So I think uh, ammonites and, and bivalve clams and stuff like that, they have a richer fossil record than plants. 
because they have hard parts. Sure. But except for that, plants definitely have a, a very have one of the richest fossil records. Interesting. So when you say you wanted to get into paleobotany, where do you even begin with that? You know, it feels like a lot of stuff might be hidden in in the the literature and and maybe kind of behind the scenes at museums and such. But what is what does a dive into the world of of paleobotany really look like as you're starting out for you at least? For me, um, I was fortunate to to stumble across a researcher who was doing paleobotany. And there's a number of different ways you can prepare samples if you're a paleobotanist. But the fossils that I've worked on for most of my academic career are anatomically preserved. So you actually have cellular level detail of all the plants preserved. And that happens because the cell walls of the plants actually have calcium carbonate that's been precipitated out to sort of surround and fill up the spaces within the plant cell walls. And depending on the rock chemistry, you can make preparations of those anatomically preserved plant fossils using a very simple technique called the cellulose acetate peel technique. Hmm. It's been around um, pretty much unchanged since the 1950s, where you take these carbonate rocks with plant material and you etch the rock in very dilute acid, exposing the plant material at the surface of the rock. And then the rock's been cut and ground flat before you do this. Then you take some acetone and melt uh, some acetone soluble plastic to that tiny bit of exposed plant material. And doing that, you can expose these very, very thin sections one after the other and make them stick to these sheets of plastic. So when I got started in paleobotany, I was just coming into the lab, working with these already cut slabs of rock that had plant fossils, and then making peels of them using the cellulose acetate peel technique. Wow. It's actually very easy to, to get started doing that. It's pretty simple. Wow, and, and a really cool kind of like directly hands-on way to be working with fossils, right? Oh, yeah. You're, you're converting the rock into a stack of sections that you can then use for anything from light microscopy to scanning electron microscopy. Wow, and incredibly versatile. I mean, we don't think of looking at fossils under a microscope. You know, you see a dinosaur bone in the museum, and it's it's big, it's hefty, and, you know, you can see it with the bare eyes. But this sounds a lot like uh, kind of what you would be doing to something alive. I mean, this is a similar technique to looking at living plants, right? Yeah, the, the end result looks very much like something you've made a, a microscope slide of. It's pretty incredible because that all happens, you know, in this rock and then you're just making a section of it. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. So to kind of dive into it, you mentioned you are a, a bryophyte paleobotanist. A, what qualifies as a bryophyte fossil? And B, how does... Uh, let's start there. What qualifies as a bryophyte fossil? So um, bryophytes are a wonderful group of plants. They're paraphyletic, so they don't share a recent common ancestor to the exclusion of anything else. But they have sort of a shared life history and way of doing everything that isn't shared with vascular plants. So we group them together, even though the group is paraphyletic. There's three lineages of bryophytes. Those are hornworts, liverworts, and mosses. Of those groups, probably the average layperson's only familiar with mosses, but they're pretty incredible plants. They, generally speaking, lack lignified vascular tissue, hmm. and they're all poikilohydric, which means that they don't control their internal water status. So they're at the mercy of their environment in terms of when they have water and when they don't. Their whole life strategy is kind of built around that, hmm. as opposed to the vascular plants, which are homeohydric and do control their internal water status. The fossils that I find of these bryophytes are their gametophytes. 
So the bryophyte life cycle is kind of the opposite of vascular plants, where the main phase that you see this long-lived is actually like a metophyte, and the sporophyte is just short-lived, which is kind of mind-bending when you yeah. first get into it. But so far, all of the fossils that I work on, they're the gametophytes, so the leafy moss shoots or the phalloid flat liverwort or hornwort phalli, and you can make serial sections of them using these peels. And that's that's really what I find, are these phalli or moss or leafy liverwort shoots, and then I make serial sections of them. That is so cool. And to think about sort of what this means for botany as a whole, for plants on planet Earth here, is... You know, these are representative of some of the earliest, uh, I guess, attempts at colonization of land. I don't want to say, you know, they're necessarily the first plants to come on land because to say any fossil was the first plant to come on land is absurd. But, you know, okay, put it into perspective, we still have mosses, liverworts, and hornworts today. What time periods are the fossils you're looking at? What are we looking at in terms of when on Earth's history this happened? So the fossils that I'm looking at are relatively recent in Earth's history. They're from the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic. Okay. So um, I'm looking at, at fossils that are as old as 155 million years old from the Jurassic of Patagonia in Argentina, and as recent as about 25 million years ago from the Oligocene of hmm. Canada. So these, these fossils I'm looking at are recent enough to represent plants that look a lot like the mosses and liverworts and hornworts you see today. I'm not really getting at the basal most members of these groups. Okay. And... Nonetheless, I mean, that's incredible, but I, I do love talking to paleo people because recent is such a relative term when you have such a deep time perspective, right? But recent or not, they are representative of things we would probably somewhat recognize today with the trained eye. Uh, that's still, from the Jurassic to the Oligocene, a huge span of time, and it's incredible that something that small even fossilizes in the first place. Is that kind of like... I guess, are, are moss fossils super special above a lot of others just because of the rarity at which it happens? That's a good question, and it's a difficult one to answer because right now there are very, very few bryophyte fossils that have ever been found, and what I'm beginning to find is that they're a lot more common than we may think. Okay. They're so small that it requires a lot of magnification to even recognize them. So um, if you're just doing a standard search for something in a rock, you could easily overlook them. Almost everything that I work on is less than a millimeter in diameter. Wow. It's really, really small stuff. That is incredible. And again, you know, going back to the technique that you outlined, this is just like going out and finding a gametophyte of a moss and cross-sessioning it. You are literally doing botany, but in rocks. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it's that's the techniques and and there's so many overlaps. So I guess, do you know more about paleo mosses as a result or is it something where you have to go out to find extant moss to compare them to and, and learn from extant moss to even go back on the fossil record and make some conclusions or conjectures or hypotheses based on the life of something that's been extinct for over 25 million years? We know next to nothing about the bryophyte fossil record, and that's why I'm so interested in this stuff. There was a recent review of this that found that until the Cenozoic, uh, or until the Miocene, there's only 450 occurrences of bryophyte fossils, period. Wow. And that's so much less than any other group of plants. So every single time you find one of these things, you're really enriching our understanding of what we know about them in the distant past. But because of that, I'm really relying on 
the bryophyte diversity we have today and looking at that to make inferences about the relationships of these things. Almost all of the plants that I'm finding can be put in modern groups, okay. modern families or orders, but a lot of them are in extinct genera. So they look sort of familiar, but they show character combinations that nothing alive has within that group. Hmm. That's absolutely incredible, and it's got to give you goosebumps to kind of recognize that, or at least be at a point in which you have enough wherewithal to know that uh, this is something truly unique that we're looking at here, and it's preserved from what I've seen in publications with exquisite detail. But again, thinking about how rare they are in our historical context, but you had said that they might actually be more common. Are there certain scenarios that would lend to better bryophyte preservation or certain rock types you go looking for? Or is this something where if you're in the right kind of place, you're looking at terrestrial fossils, you probably can find some moss fossils? Confusingly, most of the bryophyte fossils that I have worked on come from marine rocks, which is oh. very counterintuitive. But uh, there are these marine carbonate concretions that are made up of sandstone that is just completely cemented together with calcium carbonate okay. that occurs from the Jurassic all the way up to the Miocene on the west coast of North America. And these carbonate nodules are really, really common in certain parts of Vancouver Island, Canada. And that's where the bulk of my bryophyte fossils have come from. Hmm. So bizarrely, these bryophytes tumbled down a creek or a river and then got dumped into the ocean and then in a nearshore marine environment, um, probably near where there was a, a freshwater source bringing carbonate there, these nodules formed around those little fragments of plant material, including the bryophytes. Jeez. And so this strange scenario has given us most of the information that we have about these anatomically preserved bryophytes. There are two localities that I've worked on um, that are terrestrial, and those are both volcanic cherts. So imagine you're, you're next to a hot spring like Yellowstone, and there's plants that are preserved as a result of minerals being precipitated out of the, the hot water at the edges of that. That's what these sort of deposits represent. And both of those are from Argentina. So it seems like the most likely source for these bryophyte fossils are these marine carbonates of any age um, on the West Coast of North America and some of these volcanic cherts from Argentina. That is wild. And to think of just what needs to happen for them to even get there, let alone get there, be fossilized, and then, you know, someone to go out and find them, dig them up, to bring them back to the lab, to even discover that there are fossils in there in the first place. Because again, it's not like you're picking up a piece of rock with something less than a millimeter in width on and going, oh yeah, cool, we're going to take that back. So it's almost an accident that half of these were probably found in the first place, right? Yeah, and, and right now I'm in the process of sectioning thousands of these carbonate concretions <laughs> and peels of them and looking at what's inside. And you really can't see the bryophytes with your naked eye. You have to make a peel and look at it under a microscope to even Jeez. see if they're not. Wow. And as someone who does enjoy doing a little bit of fossil hunting on the side, I know for a fact that you know, not every rock you turn over is going to be a success, right? So... When you're doing this, uh, A, my hat is off to you, great dedication to the cause. What is your success rate like in trying to find bryophyte fossils? So the bryophytes are actually really common in the concretions that contain plant material. Depending on the site, a decent chunk of your concretions aren't going to have any plant material in them whatsoever. And those you make a peel and there's nothing in there. 
But if there's plant material in these concretions, I'd say almost every one has at least one fragment of a bryophyte in it, which is pretty shocking even yeah. to me. It's more common than anybody would have imagined. And so you really, you're kind of standing on this precipice of going from almost nothing, relatively speaking, to, holy cow, look at what's here if we just take the time to look. That has to be really exciting and kind of be on this forefront of paleontological discovery. It absolutely is. And that's that's why I, I love what I do. It, it's very unexplored territory. And almost everywhere I look, I, I'm just finding more and more bryophyte fossils. Yeah. And I'm curious, the detective work and the forensic that goes into any paleontological work is always one of the most fascinating things. The amount of effort and avenues of attack that it takes to get a big picture out of there and, and just the amount of detail you really can extract if you're, if you're uh, attentive enough. So can you look at these fossil remains? And you mentioned that usually if you can find other plant fossils, there will be mosses in there. Can you say anything about what it took or the, the conditions? I mean, is this a, always after a storm event or some massive flood or highly disturbance-prone event? Or are these just things that are always getting washed down and you're just lucky to kind of get a mat of vegetation that happened to fossilize? So it's always a very rare chance that any of this plant material will wind up in a carbonate concretion. That's a very, very rare event. But it's sort of different at each individual fossil locality. One of them, the, the best characterized, which is Apple Bay, on the north part of Vancouver Island, it really seems like the plant material of air did get deposited as a result of some sort of pretty catastrophic storm event because you get pretty much everything you'd expect uh, on the forest floor close to the river hmm. in the fossil deposits. There's tons of mosses. There's liverworts. There's even what I think are fern gametophytes. There's tons of fern diversity. And additionally, at Apple Bay, it, it probably, uh, these concretions were formed pretty close to shore. So these things didn't get transported very far. But it, it seems like it's a mixture from one locality to the next. Wow, so the nuances of fossilization is is just exponentially more than I even realized. That's, that is incredible. So you, again, are looking at a span of time. It may seem like a short span of time and deep time perspective, but going from, again, the Jurassic to the Oligocene, that's a huge chunk of time. A lot was changing on Earth at that time. So let's talk about this bryophyte flora. I mean, are you seeing reflections of climate change? Are you seeing evolution taking place? Are you seeing lineages come on board, diversify, or lineages winking out? Or is it really just trying to catalog at this point what's there before you can even go back and look at big patterns of, of diversity of life? At this point, it's absolutely the stage of just having to catalog it and <laughs> see what's there. But um, a few of the localities are further along than the others. People are working on the bryophytes from Apple Bay for the last at least seven years. And so we have a pretty good handle on the bryophyte diversity there. It's also one of the older localities. It's about 135 million years old. Wow. It's from the early Cretaceous. And I'm sort of using Apple Bay as a benchmark to compare all these other localities that I'm finding with bryophyte fossils. And they are surprisingly similar, even the localities from Argentina, from the uh, Jurassic of Argentina. It seems like a lot of the same groups of bryophytes are present at all of them. And I'm not seeing, at least at this point, really obvious big changes across that big time span. Wow. That's 
tantalizing to say the least and and a really exciting thing again to have enough resolution to say that but again all of this is coming from close observation these thin sections of fossils and one of the thing that is always most startling to me is when i think about again the dinosaur bones in a museum or a mastodon skeleton pulled out of a bog you know sometimes it's really well preserved material and other times you're like that's a rock i don't know what's going on here uh, what are you seeing? I mean, I've seen some of the cross-sections. They're incredibly detailed. Are you getting full gametophytes? You're getting just fragments of gametophytes? Is it all across the board? How much do you usually have to work with when you start in on going, okay, we found bryophytes. What are they? So you, you never get the whole gametophyte. You always get just a fragment. But that fragment can be pretty small or pretty big. The smallest fragments that I feel pretty comfortable identifying are maybe half a millimeter long, and they can, they can be a couple millimeters long. They don't really get bigger than that. These are really small pieces of these plants. But because the bryophytes themselves are so small, even if the piece is tiny, you get all the major gametophyte parts of the plant. You get the stem, you get the leaves, you get the rhizoids, and in some cases you get the gametangia, and even asexual reproductive structures like GEMA. Wow. So these are incredibly tiny pieces, but they have pretty much the whole you know, plant organography on them, usually. In a way, their small size actually works to your benefit. Because if you're working with bigger vascular plants, like a big tree, you're just going to get isolated organs. And you're not going to see those organs in direct attachment very often mm. in the fossil record. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But also... You know, not to downplay the difficulty or at least the challenge that is doing any sort of accurate biophyte identification. And it's not like you guys can blast this, get a genome and say, OK, these sort out roughly here. So, I mean, really, this is kind of a, a bryophyte identification question overall. But what are really important characters that you need to even begin to go to the books and say, OK, is this something that is represented in extant flora or do we have to kind of come up with our own scheme here because we haven't ever seen anything like this before? How do you do it? Bryophyte identification is usually difficult even with living bryophytes. <laughs> a lot of the variation happens at a very, very small scale. If you've ever tried to just pick a random moss up off a forest floor or a tree and put a name on it, you know how hard it can be. Yeah. And it really relies on information you get from a compound microscope. So you'll, you'll actually look at the morphology of the leaf lamina cells in different parts of the leaf, the shape of the leaf, especially the leaf apex. You'll make cross sections of individual leaves, and especially in some groups, and look at the anatomy of those leaves. And then you also may look at the anatomy of the stem and any differences between the branches that bear the gametangia and normal vegetative parts of the plant. Those are all things that we have for the gametophytes of the fossils. So in some ways, it's actually very similar to working with the, the living material because you're going to make a microscope prep where you make a cross section of the leaves and a cross section of the stem and a whole mount of the leaves. So as long as we can get the correct planes of section in the fossils, we can have all that information about the gametophyte available to us. What makes it difficult is we, at least in this material, never get sporophytes. And the sporophytes are really taxonomically informative. So the big challenge for me has been getting comfortable with identifying these things as well as I can just from the gametophyte. The other challenge has been that the anatomy of some moss 
groups is not as well documented as you might expect. Hmm. And, and so I've actually had to make a lot of sections of living material for comparison because that data is oftentimes not available. Or if it is, it's not available in the, the same plane of section that I would like to see it in. That's so cool. And uh, I mean, I can see where that, as a grad student especially, could become potentially very frustrating. But overall, I mean, the amount of detail, again, that you have to be aware of and just being able to go, okay, well, we got to go to the extant moss floor to even get a comparative sort of angle on this. I haven't even thought about the angle, let alone the right kinds of pieces and such. Now, you mentioned that sporophytes, you just don't have those available is that just because they tend to be smaller or, or more fragile? Or, you know, why do you think they lack in pieces? Because, you know, I, I look at the moss that's growing in my lawn, for instance, and there's, there, there always seems to be sporophytes on those little buggers. Yeah, especially for the mosses, it's, it's kind of tr- interesting why we don't have sporophytes. Because moss sporophytes, they're, they're short-lived compared to the gametophytes, but in many groups of mosses, they stay attached to the gametophyte for a long time. And even if we don't have the capsule, the sporangium, You'd expect to find the CETA attached to some of these, and we never have. Right now, our working hypothesis is that there's something about the taphonomy, about the, the process of transport and all of that, that these fossils went through that just weeded out the sporophytes. So um, at least for sporophytes with capsules, it could be easy to imagine how those capsules may have floated mm. and not sunk to the bottom of the ocean and gotten buried in sandstone. But... It's it's hard for me to wrap my head around how that would happen to uh, gametophytes with just CETA attached and no capsules. Hopefully, we can we can find some sporophytes, but been look, we're looking at this material for a long time and we've never found any so far. Yeah, you would think just by you know law of large numbers and chance, but that's that's in and of itself a really interesting question to be able to ask about the fossilization process, especially as it relates to bryophytes. But now. You know, kind of going back to this identification idea is once you kind of have a good specimen ready to go and and maybe, okay, you don't have a living moss available right next to you to compare it to, you know, this isn't like something where you can go into an herbarium and say, oh, okay, well, this was collected you know, 50 to 100 years ago. I'm still going to look in the flora of, say, California because this was discovered here. I, I would feel that, you know, maybe not the Oligocene, but the Jurassic period, that era, all bets are off on whether or not it's part of the flora today or has representatives in the flora today. So, you you know, do you feel like having a, a more global perspective on bryophyte diversity really helps? And and how do you even try to get your head wrapped around that? You almost have to be, it seems, a specialist on all northern hemisphere mosses. Absolutely. You <laughs> have to come at it from a, a global perspective. Otherwise, you can't really feel comfortable with an ID. So if I've found something new, a morphotype of moss or liverwort that I have a lot of and I feel I have enough material that I I can try to identify, my first step is to go to resources that I have from around the world. So I have, you know, the flora of North America for bryophytes. I have European bryophyte floras. I have Asian bryophyte floras. I have South American bryophyte floras. And I just go through those keys and see if there's any pattern to where these things are falling out in the general keys in those books. And sometimes they converge on similar groups. Sometimes they're different groups. And then I'll I'll just dig into those books and see if I can find mosses that have similar anatomies to what I'm seeing. And so it really begins when you have to identify something with a big literature survey. It gets easier every time, though, because... 
a lot of bryophytes have really big distributions. Their biogeography is in some ways quite different from vascular plants. And, and so you start to get comfortable with a lot of that anatomical variation, at least to big groups, surprisingly quickly. Hmm. And that's so cool because, again, I, I love looking for fossils. There's nothing more interesting to me than holding a fossil in your hand and going like this thing was alive millions of years ago, and oftentimes it's seeing the light of day for the first time because of me picking up this rock, right? But then to be able to go into a key, a floristic key that was written by humans millions of years later and go, hey, some of this is actually keying out. Maybe it's not, again, to the genus or species level, but geez, that, that as, a, as a, a lover of biology, as a lover of the living world, that's got to feel so cool. It does, and it's it's mind blowing. One of my favorite things to do is to, you know, open up a flora and, and go look at the figures and see what is essentially the same anatomy in something that's alive today in this book that somebody drew, and look in the fossil, look in the microscope, and you see basically the same structures. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you really do get a deeper appreciation for the complexity of life, but also the whole idea of there's things that definitely work and there's things that definitely don't work. And and there's no, I hate, you know, when people talk about primitive lineages or something like that, it, they're really all of, everything we see alive today is an evolutionary success story that has stood the test of time. And I think having these bryophyte fossils in hand, being able to look at them is a real testament to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that you uh, you don't like calling these living groups primitive because they're not. So many times people talk about bryophytes today, living groups, as, as if they're primitive. And if you look at the bryophyte flora today, they're highly specialized for a way of life that nothing else is. At least no other plants are. And that's incredible. They're really derived plants, all of them that we have today. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, again, going back in time, the fact that you can look at these and, and see common structures, it would tell you that, again, not only is the bryophyte design, so to speak, in an evolutionary sense, a successful one, but also, yes, climates change, continents collide and crack open and stuff. But the physics of living on planet Earth have largely been the same. And you're still getting the same kind of pressure shaping organisms bodies through and through. You could absolutely see how poikilohydrate affects these fossilized bryophytes. They have a lot of the same adaptations for increasing their surface area for water storage around them. You see in living bryophytes. And, and because the cell morphology, especially of the leaf lamina, is so important to a bryophyte's physiology, you can actually make these inferences about this organism's ecophysiology just from what you see in the fossil, which is incredible. Yeah. And to think about, you know, that then goes on to say, hey, we can maybe make some general inferences about the habitat of that moss and say, OK, well, this one seems to be a little bit more desiccation tolerant or adapted for an epiphytic lifestyle, say. I mean, is that do you, again, see enough resolution to be able to say, well, this species might have lived epiphytically or this one was growing on the forest floor? So the sorts of inferences that I can make rely on the organism's anatomy and using its anatomy to infer its environmental interactions. So I've started by characterizing these bryophytes with the most conspicuous anatomies. There's something about them that's really strange. And a good example is in the family Polytrichaceae, mosses have these 
adaxial projections from their leaves, these sheets of cells that stick up that are called photosynthetic lamellae. And those are instantly recognizable in the fossil as well as the living material. And the presence of those lamellae in the fossil means the exact same physiological thing as, as what, what, what happens with the extant mosses. And it's a way to increase the surface area for photosynthesis. And they're capped, these lamellae in the fossils, just as they are with living mosses with lamellae, with these inflated cells with a thick cuticle. So it's, it's a way to have a unistratos leaf lamina where you increase the surface area for photosynthesis and you have a little chamber that's sort of made between these sheets of cells that's capped with a more or less water impermeable cap. So you've, you've, you've basically made some uh, mesophyll for yourself by sticking up these projections on the top side of your leaf. And so you can say that these fossil polytrichaceae that we find, they, they lived in pretty high light environments, which is actually unusual for mosses. So depending on the group, you can make these pretty strong inferences about where they lived. We also find fossil leucobriaceae, things very closely related to the extant genus leucobrium that has this complex anatomy with a, a costa or midrib that's differentiated into a central layer of cells that are tiny and alive at maturity and densely filled with chlorophyll, and this outer layer of cells on either side that's dead at maturity and large and filled with pores. And today, the leucobraceae thrive in sort of waterlogged environments because they have these water-filled cells on the outside with air pores to allow CO2 into that are right next to all of these tiny, very densely chlorophyll cells that do all of the photosynthesis. Huh. So you, you have a way of, of, doing, of, of doing sort of carbon concentration by bringing CO2 where you need it to, even in a waterlogged environment. And we can see that in these fossils. Wow. Dude, you are blowing my mind with this right now. I can't, I just, this is so cool <laughs> that, again, I keep having to remind myself that these are thin sections of rocks being taken and looked at under a microscope. This isn't necessarily just looking at living material. This is incredible. And you can, you can put the living material side by side with the fossil material and the anatomy is essentially identical, which allows you to make these kinds of really rich comparisons. Are you prone to getting goosebumps when you do this kind of work? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> certainly the, the first time that you see a moss with, with that sort of distinctive anatomy and you realize what it means, it's it's incredible. Yeah. So big picture. I mean, I don't need you to convince me that this is amazingly incredible and important work. But if you zoom back from a big paleobotanical evolution of life, evolution of plants on this planet perspective, you know, to the average listener that goes, OK, that's really cool. Why is it important that we are finding and analyzing these moss fossils? What What is the, kind of the big picture takeaway that really kind of helps bring all of this together? So there's a couple of big picture things that get me excited. One is that epiphytes are really ecologically important all over the world in many different forest types. But we don't really understand epiphyte evolution in the same way we understand terrestrial plant evolution. Epiphytes don't make it into the fossil record as often as terrestrial plants do. And if you go you know, to a forest in the Pacific Northwest, like where I live, and you look up at the trees, there can be these huge epiphyte loads. <laughs> and that really affects the ecology of the host plant. That stores water, that leads to increased nutrient deposition. And I want to use these fossils to try and understand how epiphytes and, and epiphytic bryophytes have changed across time. 
And that's relevant to today because if we want to understand how our epiphyte communities that are ecologically important will change in the face of a, a changing world and in response to climate change, we can actually get some perspective on that by looking back in time at what these communities were like in the distant past. It's also interesting to me because bryophytes have such a sparse fossil record, so we can actually ground truth a lot of the ideas about bryophyte evolution that have been generated using molecular data. So you can go out and sequence all of these living bryophytes and get relationships. What I have the ability to do with these fossils is look and say, do the results of the molecular data find support from the fossil record? In most groups, there's a, a significant enough fossil record where you don't actually get to test that. The fossils are integrated into a, a, a bigger picture. With bryophytes, that doesn't happen much yet. So, for example, um, I think it's a really good opportunity to test the actual methodology of using molecular clocks. Because within bryophytes, there's so few calibration points for calibrating your molecular clock analyses, you're really relying on those models and the molecular data. And I can look at the predictions those models make and see, do they match up with the fossil record? Wow. And that does matter because it, it's a way to actually test the methods themselves and see if these methods, when they don't have calibration points, seem to yield reasonable results. Huh. I had never thought of it that way. That is really interesting. Wow. And, you know, you mentioned climate change. It's obviously on a lot of people's minds. Uh, it's, it's really tough when you have such a deep time perspective to kind of put into context to the average person what we're doing to this planet, right? But to paint a picture of the time period, broadly speaking, obviously we could probably have a whole podcast devoted to paleoclimatology, but... Going from the Jurassic to Oligocene, what was going on, at least in the region that you study? I mean, was this a period where we saw the Earth getting warmer, cooler? How much was climate changing during these time periods? So the vast majority of the bryophytes that I'm looking at are from the Cretaceous. And the Cretaceous was a much warmer time in Earth's climate. There were parts of the Cretaceous where there were no polar ice caps, or at least we believe that to be the case. So the Cretaceous, things were really warm. And then things cooled down a little bit and then got much, much hotter during the Eocene. So during the, the, the Eocene fossils, so about 45 to 50 million years ago, and the Cretaceous fossils are actually looking at a snapshot of diversity when this region was much warmer than it is today. Hmm. So again, a lot of potential there to kind of, you know, not use it as a predictive sense, but have a better understanding of how life overall, especially the botanical community, which supports all other forms of life on this planet, might respond to future scenarios. Yeah, and, and I think bryophytes are, are actually really important to consider in the context of climate change, because bryophytes, due to their poikilohydric lifestyle, are always on the verge of not achieving a net carbon balance. <laughs> Um, they have really inefficient photosynthesis compared to vascular plants. And if you take a bryophyte and you force it to stay physiologically active, basically you, you keep it in a wet environment and you increase the temperature, a lot of bryophytes will actually have a net negative carbon balance. Hmm. Because bryophytes tend to avoid hotter temperatures by being coquilohydric. Generally, if it's hot and, and dry, the bryophyte will just shut down and won't deal with that physiologically stressful environment. Yeah. But keep it wet and humid, it will respire itself to death, at least in, if you increase the heat enough. Wow, there's a lot 
to think about with that, uh, especially, you know, as this whole talk of model organisms and such, very rarely, if ever, do I see someone mentioning a moss as being a, a potential candidate, but there you go. I mean, here is a really great indicator, if you can know where to look and know how to find them, of kind of, again, ground-truthing other ideas and, and kind of putting another layer of data on top of our certainty for certain conclusions based on paleo records and such. Yeah. Fascinating, man. So, okay, you're just starting out. As you mentioned, this is still in largely an exploratory phase, but as you move forward here, what kind of questions are you hoping to ask? What kind of ideas are you looking to test? Or are you really more interested in the categorizing and cataloging at this point? Where are you at with it, and what do you hope to get out of the future? So right now, I'm still totally categorizing and cataloging everything. But long term, what I hope to be able to do is to figure out when different major bryophyte groups show up in the fossil record, because we don't have a good handle on that right now. For example, there's only two or three fossil hornworms that have ever been found. And I think I found one from one of the Cretaceous localities in addition to that. So you have the, the power to basically add some information about when these things showed up. And right now, I'm seeing a lot of the same groups over and over again. But that's in part because these are easy to recognize groups that I'm seeing over and over again. They have conspicuous anatomies that just stand out at you. Eventually, I hope that we'll be able to have a, a record for bryophytes like that of vascular plants, where you can say that, you know, right around this time, let's say the, the early Cretaceous, this major group shows up. This other major group shows up later. It shows up in the Eocene. Right now, we just don't have the ability to do that. Eventually, I, I think we can get there with bryophytes. We just take a lot of time describing everything that we find. Yeah, and to finally be kind of like you said in, on the front of this is is got to be exciting in and of itself. But thinking about someone that's this passionate about it and is spending a lot of time looking at organisms that are, you know, for all intents and purposes, new to science... I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you had maybe a favorite fossil, a favorite fossilized species, or favorite uh, incident in which you were seeing something new that really just stands out so far above the rest. Is there anything that really uh, has, has kind of made this the, the pinnacle of, of experience so far? For me, the most incredible thing to, to discover was gemma inside of a gemma cup, which are the asexual propagules of a moss gametophyte. Wow. So I had these little tiny 100 micron by 50 micron structures inside of a cup of densely packed leaves. And I was trying to figure out what they were. And so I, I sectioned a, a moss that had a gemma cup, a living one, embedded it in, in wax and sectioned it, made microscope slides, stained them. And then when those slides were made, compared it to the fossil, and they looked, the, the gemma inside of the gemma cup looked identical. <laughs> They had the exact same histology, the exact same size, the exact same shape. And you could even see that these gemmae were attached to the bottom of the gemma cup with these unicellular little tubes that you could see in the living one and in the fossil. That was just incredible. It it was totally mind-blowing to see these really tiny structures just right there in the fossil. Yeah, and again, the almost the craftsmanship of being the person that has done this technique. I mean, I know you said it's it's not the most sophisticated technique, but it does take a certain skill set to be able to pull it off. Uh, it, that in and of itself is amazing, but then everything else that that follows suit. Yeah, it's it's really really fun to to look at appeal every time you make it. It just blows your mind. I bet. 
Well, Alex, I mean, I know, again, you're just starting out, but for people that kind of want to keep track of this journey and, and find out more about all of the amazing fossilized bryophyte discoveries being done in the world of paleobotany, how do you recommend people find out more about you, your work, your lab, everything? So you can find me on ResearchGate, just search my name, and you'll find all of the research articles that um, I work on. You can also find some information about me and about some of the other people who work on these fossil bryophytes uh, at my old advisor's website, which is the which is Mihai Tomescu's lab at Humboldt State that I worked on in for the last seven years. So if you go to Tomescu Lab Group, you can go to Mihai Tomescu's website and see all the publications that he's been on from, from all his research and find out more about this stuff too. Excellent. Well, Alex, thank you for bringing the world of fossilized bryophytes to light. I mean, A, you're welcome back on the podcast anytime, especially because I know you're in for a whole world of discovery over the next few years. But B, thank you for making this a reality for so many people. I don't know if too many people think about moss fossils on a daily basis. That was my goal here, was to just tell people this wonderful world of fossilized bryophytes exists and hopefully get them excited about it. Excellent. Well, I'm excited. And again, keep us posted. Uh, this is really cool work and uh, my hat's off to you. Keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate it. Excellent. Well, have a great day. You too. Take care. Cheers. Absolutely incredible stuff. I thank Alex for taking time out of his schedule to talk with us. And I learned a lot and I hope you did too. It's incredible to think of all the work that has to go into extracting these fossils, let alone the ability to sit down and be able to recognize what they are and study them in detail and, and to be able to pull out data and information of this bygone era. It's, it's amazing. I think he has a very bright future in the world of paleobotany. All right, that about wraps it up for this episode, but I thank all of you for tuning in and listening. Special shout out to Carly. She is our most recent patron over on patreon.com slash plants at the producer credit level. So this podcast is produced in part by Carly and all of the other fantastic patrons who have been wonderfully generous in helping to support this podcast. If you would like to go check out what we have going on over there, head on over to patreon.com slash plants. Also, we have stickers for sale, indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Go check that out as well. As always, there is a lot of incredible stuff on the horizon. So many good interviews, so many good conversations. So stay tuned, and the best way to do that is to hit that subscribe button. Thank you for listening, everyone. And until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios.